Travel restrictions loosen even more as Chicago's latest COVID measures show the lowest case counts and test positivity rates since the pandemic began. That according to the Chicago Department of Public Health. So our case average is at 157 new COVID cases being diagnosed in the city of Chicago every day. That is down 38% from a week ago, and that is the lowest number of new COVID cases that we have had since the beginning, That's since amazing. March of 2020. It's really amazing. And I'll check in with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, to discuss news from the local housing market. Uh, one of the signs that a lot of people are buying second first homes is the school district. The New Buffalo School District told me that their enrollment was up 6% last September, and it had been in decline for as much as a decade. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, June 3rd. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. Hi there and welcome to Crane's Daily Gist Live. I'm Amy Guth and I'm joined as I am every week by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. Hello, Dennis. How's it going? Great, Amy. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Hey, so let's start with a follow-up on something we mentioned last week because last week we talked a bit about muddy waters and that has tweaked a little bit. Tell me what's going on. Yeah, it moved faster than it might have. Um, what I reported early last week was that landmarking was likely to really get rolling um, on June 7th with a community meet, a community advisory meeting held by Alderman Sophia King, whose ward Muddy Waters' old house is in. And then on Friday, uh, this past Friday, the landmarking question came up on the Landmarks Commission's um, agenda for this week. So it's actually being discussed a few days earlier. That it's there's a little bit of politics there that I don't really cover, but um, it was it was likely to go on the Landmarks agenda and start with a press conference uh, on Thursday morning, then uh, be considered for landmarking. Uh, sorry, sorry, be a press conference last Thursday and come out on the agenda on Friday and then go on the Landmarks Commission's meeting this coming Thursday. Then there was this sort of last minute change. Alderman King said she was going to have this community meeting. Now it's kind of running on two tracks. Landmarking, the Landmarks Commission will discuss it on Thursday and then early next week, Alderman King's meeting happens. The point here is it's all moving forward. I probably should have said that first. Landmarking of Muddy Waters House seems imminent at this point. This is a good thing for a couple of reasons. One is, uh, first of all, we are, we, if the city landmarks it, we're recognizing the incredible musical um, history of that house, the influence that Muddy Waters had, not only not only his great music, but all the people he influenced. And the other advantage, if it gets landmarked, is that 
um, more funding is likely to be unlocked for the conversion of the building to the Mojo, the Muddy Waters Mojo Museum that his great granddaughter is trying to create in that house, which has been in his family's hands, still is since 1954. Um, if it's a landmark, she's likely to be to qualify for adopt a landmark funds and other sorts of things. So getting it landmarked is not just a symbolic move. It's a strategic step that could help create a museum there on Lake Park Avenue where Muddy Waters and many other musicians rehearsed in the basement, performed in the front yard, slept at night. It's a, it, I think it will be great to see this move forward. And as you mentioned last week, he lived in this house during kind of a heyday. Like he had some really big hits out at the time. His biggest hits were recorded when he was, I'm your hoochie coochie man, um, mannish boy. They were recorded while he was living in this house. They were probably rehearsed in the basement, which was his basement rehearsal studio. He later moves to Westmont. Uh, and lives out his days there, but but the house remains in his family's hands. It has been boarded up for quite a while. I'm not sure how long it's been vacant, at least 10 years. It has a brand new roof as of this spring, which uh, was funded in part by some of the grants that uh, the Mojo Museum has received. And so now the interior work is supposed to begin. And again, if the building gets landmarked, not only do we acknowledge what happened there, but it's possible that more funding comes across to help move that museum forward. And what's the timeline for, you know, for all of this to play out? Uh, not sure, because um, so it goes before the Landmarks Commission this week. It could go to city council at the very next city council meeting or the one after that. But the question will be, how do these uh, community advisory meetings by Alderman Sophia King affect that schedule? It could happen really fast. Um, or it could take a little longer. We don't know because there's more politics involved here than just the idea that let's landmark Muddy Waters' house. Oh, I should have said when it came out on the agenda on Friday, which was a surprise, there was also a pretty hearty endorsement from Mayor Lightfoot essentially saying, yeah, we have to make this a landmark. So speaking of history, let's talk about uh, a place in Wicker Park. It's on the market for $8.45 million, but its history, it used to be an orphanage. It has been so many things. Well, it's been three primary, served three primary purposes. Built in 1906 as an orphanage, the Marks Nathan home, uh, funded by the will of an Orthodox Jew who died and left money to build this and to build a synagogue in Israel. He was called uh, Chicago's scrap iron king at the time. Orphanage outgrows this building very quickly, less than six years, and builds a new one in Lawndale. It becomes a, Pol a Jewish women's building. And then from the 30s forward to the 80s, it's a Polish army veterans building, both meetings and residential for uh, retired veterans. From the mid 80s until uh, 2014, it was the Wood Street Gallery. Uh, which included housing for artists, a gallery, housing for the owner of the building. It's 22,000 square feet. So 2014, it was purchased by a couple. It was not in great shape. It had There hadn't been a lot of work done on it. It needed pretty much everything. And that couple who paid $3.1 million for it in 2014 um, did a ton to it. They have done everything, including ripping out the old, terrible water mains and putting in big new ones that go all the way out to the side or to the city mains under the street. They've uh, they 
took out essentially every interior wall and rebuilt. They put on, you can see sort of a wrap around the top. That's where they put on a steel structure that will support uh, a, a big rooftop deck. They also developed two rentals inside the building. The building is 22,000 square feet. They developed in about 5,000 square feet of it two rentals um, that collect a total of about $12,500 a month. And those have been occupied. In the other 17,000 square feet, they hadn't yet moved in, the, these owners who are doing the rehab. They've now moved to California. They told me that they moved because of a job relocation. Um, and so they put it on the market with those two rentals, fully finished and rented. But then the other 17,000 square feet is not done. It's been, it's had all the big stuff done. What she said to me is we did everything that it sucks to pay for. We did, you know, the utilities and the, the big heavy stuff that goes behind the walls. Now you get to come in, pay 8.45 million or something close to that and spend more to finish it with walls and finishes and floors and that sort of thing. Um, and have a 17,000 square foot home with two uh, rentals that are generating income in the same building. What an interesting building and what a interesting division. You don't usually, you know, usually a building that size, they'll just chop it up into condos or apartments or whatever. And I do think that that's possible for the next use. Um, it, they're selling it, they're, they're essentially selling it in, in its, uh, present zoning condition, which is really three units. Um, how many units a developer might put in there, if a developer were to buy it and divide the entire 22,000, let's say, or just the remaining 17 into condos, let's say that's about five units, I don't know. Um, they would have to go before the alderman and zoning and that sort of thing to make it happen. But it's pretty big. Uh, and so it seems likely, as likely that a developer would come after it as that another single family homeowner wanting 17,000 square feet would come after it. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I love all the stories that you bring forth about this is what this building used to be. I mean, there's so many interesting buildings in this city everywhere, but especially this city, I think that um, I love when those stories are known by the present occupants and owners. I think that's fascinating. Well, I think one of the cool ones about this is you really see the history of Wicker Park. It's a, an orphanage for Jewish kids when Wicker Park was a working class sort of an area. Then it becomes this Polish veterans building when really Wicker Park and all of that West Town, near West Side, near Northwest Side area was very Polish. We know the Polish alliances there, the two big Polish churches. Um, it was really, a, and, and um, uh, the Polish Triangle, all are within reach of this. It was very much a Polish neighborhood. Then it becomes a place that is sort of repopulated by artists starting in the 80s, 90s. And this is a piece of that, an early piece of that. And now, um, I don't know how you would describe Wicker Park's current incarnation. It's a very cool place to live. And this seems like it would be a cool place to live within that cool place to live. <laughs> Getting kind of meta there. Cool within cool yeah. within cool. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this one ends up to see if a developer gets it or if someone says, yeah, I want the size of a single family house and I'll take a couple rentals on the ground floor. Great, let's do this. All right, let's talk about this house in Glen Ellen. Lots of water. You've got a pool, you've got a pond, and you have a big porch. You have a lot going on here. This is uh, one you're profiling before it hits the market. It is 1.5 million. Tell me about it. 
Yeah, this is a nice one. So this was sort of an 80s house when they bought it. They made a lot of changes. It had volume ceilings and all that sort of thing. But the the princip- the fundamentals it had, they loved then, are still there now. Um, big front porch with lots of furniture, spans the entire front of the house. And it's a real front porch. It has beadboard on the top. It has room for furniture. This is not, I called it a vestigial front porch on the uh, on the story where, you know, a house looks like it has a front porch, but it's too skinny even to put a couch on or anything like that. And so really it just looks like a porch. This is not air sets. This is a porch. Then in back, there is a pond that eight houses share. And this house has a dock that you can walk out onto the pond. You can put in a canoe or kayak. You can fish. Apparently, they, they also skate on it in the winter. And it has a pool, which it doesn't share with eight with uh, seven other houses. It's, it's your own pool. Um, so you've got, as they said, it sort of feels like you're at, at a resort, but you're 19 miles from downtown Chicago in Glen Ellen. It's a, it's a very, it's a really pretty place. And you're also a very short distance, a couple of miles from downtown Glen Ellen, which is also very pretty, has a great old theater and some nice restaurants. So it, it's well located and it's really pretty. Yeah. And tons of green space. I mean, you have a, like you said, it does feel kind of resort-like, like even this is, even though this is Glen Ellen, you're on a pond and you're only sharing that with seven other people, not, you know, tons of people. It's not packed in there. You have a lot of trees. It feels like you have space there from your neighbors. It does. Yeah. It's, there are parts of Glen Ellen that are denser than this. This is sort of toward the South where it's not quite as dense and it does, it, it really does feel as if you've got room to breathe, which of course, during the pandemic, we all wanted. What they told me is you can see the pool from the pond, you can see the pond from the pool, and you can see both from virtually every room in the house. Nothing wrong with that. No, I think it's like being at a resort. One of the 80s things, 80s, 90s things they really corrected is they took this bay that was just this giant two-story, nearly three-story high window, and they dropped a ceiling in the middle of it so that it didn't, I mean, it was wasted space, and and everybody has found who had those volume ceilings that it's hard to heat, And it's just sort of, it's also very hard to clean without poles and things like that. So they dropped a ceiling, created a storage room and made it just feel much more traditional and classic, um, which I think is a a great move they made. Some of the other changes they made were they uh, enlarged the kitchen, they enlarged the primary bath, they moved the, uh, they way they were able to enlarge the kitchen is they moved a laundry room back down to the basement. They just, I think they did some really smart things in rearranging, redoing the house and got rid of some of those sort of excesses. I think the major excess would be those huge tall windows that do nothing. You still from the, all these rooms have great big views of the pond and the pool and that sort of thing. It's not as if they've given up the view. They've given up the difficulty dusting those upper levels of the windows. And you can kind of see that, I think, is what I'm looking at, kind of by the staircase in that picture. You see, it looks like a two-story window right there next to it. Yeah, and and it's also, it's hard to tell in this photo, but if you look at that bar, if you look at those three chairs, that was open space. It was open air from this family room, which is uh, at the walkout basement level, up to the living room, which is on the main level. Um, and they also put a ceiling there. They changed from a big grand staircase. You would have come in the house on the main level and then you know, proceeded down the stairs to here and out, out the door. That seemed a little much to them. So they reduced the size of the staircase and they gained all that room that has the bar and above it, 
uh, in the living room, it, it's enough space that they have a grand piano. I mean, to look at this house, you wouldn't know that it had undergone such a renovation. I mean, it looks like this is all original and it has nice details, yeah. but I mean, adding a ceiling, that's a lot. I like the changes they made. I really like the out the outside because you've got all those features, the pool and all that that we've discussed. And what's interesting is they told me how much they liked the house before they bought it. And then they proceeded to make all these changes. So they had something in mind and they knew that they could just sort of bring this house forward. Um, both this house and the one in Wicker Park, the sellers tell me that they have more in the house for the purchase and rehab than they're asking now. This one, they're asking 1.5. They paid, they bought it. Uh, back in 2001 for 1.3 million. Um, and it does look as if they did more than $200,000 work. They've also redone the pool and everything else. So in both cases, they're asking less than they've invested in the house. And again, do you have any idea of like why they're moving? Because it seems like just with the other owners, you've, they put so much work into this house, they're almost sad to see them go. The owners in Wicker Park would only say that they're moving, that they have moved to California. Uh, these Glen Allen owners are older um, not ancient, but they, they've been retired for a while and they're moving to a place that has an elevator. They're moving within Glen Ellen. It will be their first home. I mean, their fourth home in Glen Ellen in over 30 years. But, um, this is a lot when you, when you get to a certain age and your knees don't want to go up and down the stairs, then you start to think about things like elevators. You're telling me that I live in a walk up. Heck yeah. I know. <laughs> no, I'm telling you that because that's where my knees are starting to go. <laughs> I'm going to be I'm going to be calling you from my elevator townhouse. <laughs> Please do. All right, let's go now to um, let's go to New Buffalo. I thought this was interesting. The kind of the wave of the second first home buyers in New Buffalo. Tell me about this. Yeah. So New Buffalo, for people who don't know, is the first town you hit when you go around the bottom of Lake Michigan and cross from Indiana into Michigan. Um, it has very, for a very long time been a second home capital for Chicagoans and also for people from Michigan and, and South Bend and places like that. Uh, it Like so many real estate markets, it has been dramatically lifted by the current events. Um, the current situation. I saw four sales at over $4 million since the shift. Um, so, and that's more than they've had in any other year. The big shift really kicked in last fall. So it's been less than a year. Um, there was, and, and these are, these are like huge houses. So I started asking, um, and a lot of what you see is people buy a second home now as nice as or nicer than the first home. This is not just a place to like, you know, ride a bike and kick some sand off your shoes. This is a place where you're likely to gather with multiple generations. One of the real estate agents I spoke to said that, you know, these are families who in many cases uh, have the means to take the whole family on a trip to Europe or someplace like that every year. And of course, couldn't last year. So instead you buy a house where you can pull everybody together and it may have beach and pool so that, you know, it's, it's a vacation for everybody. So people, when you're doing that, you're likely to spend more. You're going to buy enough space to put everybody. Um, but it's not only at that upper end. I, uh, let me check my numbers because I have them sales in that whole strip along the lake from New Buffalo up to Harbert are up 48%. It were up 48% in the first quarter of 2021 from the first quarter of 2020. The Real Estate Association also sent, sent me figures all the way through April and May, but April and May are weird because 2020 
was very suppressed. Everything was shut down. Real estate was shut down in Michigan or uh, in those resort towns. Real estate was shut down while it was not in Chicago. So I don't want to make a comparison to April. But if you just look at the first quarter, sales are up 48% across that region. And here's one of the things that makes it sound like a lot of these, nobody knows for sure, but a lot of these are probably buying that second first home where I might have a home, let's say, in the South Loop and one in New Buffalo. And they're both it's not that one of them is my vacation home. One is where I've lived for the whole past year, uh, and it's in New Buffalo. Uh, one of the signs that a lot of people are buying second first homes is the school district. The New Buffalo school district told me that their enrollment was up 6% last September, beginning of the current school year or the recently closed school year, and it had been in decline for as much as a decade. They had not had an increase in population in years. Suddenly they go up six, uh, about 6%, about half of that or 3% was uh, kids who used to go to school in the Chicago area. The rest are Michigan, Indiana, et cetera. So it looks as if there's more of an investment in um, staying full-time, either short-term or long-term in New Buffalo. Interesting. Well, we're, we're going to have to keep looking at those numbers. I think it's been interesting how people have kind of moved around during the pandemic. Of those kids who entered the school district, just as one example, do you then see them all go back to their Chicago or suburban schools, either next school year or the school year after? Or do the parents say, man, this, you know, it's great to be going to this little sort of country school by comparison to a Chicago or suburban school. Let's keep them here until they finish eighth grade or they finish high school. All right, let's now go to Wisconsin. There is a house, an eco-friendly house. It's on 79 acres. It's 187 miles northwest of the loop. It's listed for 2.5 million, and it's across from the Frank Lloyd Wright estate. Tell me about this. You know what, Amy? I wish I had talked to you beforehand. I yeah. don't want to talk to you about this one because I want to buy that house. Oh. <laughs> we don't talk about it. Nobody else will bid me up. Um, no, really. It, it is a very is, Rodkin house. I will say I, it is it, very you. I could totally you see you in this house. All of it. It's 79 acres. It's got green features. It's across from Taliesin. So I'd be looking at Frank Lloyd Wright buildings. All I need is the two and a half million dollars. And that's the other thing I should have talked to you about beforehand. Can I cannot you help you with that. <laughs> you are barking up the wrong tree. This house is really interesting. So this is a couple um, for people who don't know Taliesin. Uh, Spring Green is where Taliesin is. Spring Green is a beautiful little town in Wisconsin, made more beautiful by the fact that uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's estate was there. And there are there are many buildings still there, still in operation right across the road from where this house was built. This couple who were Chicagoans um, were involved with the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation. They were going to Spring Green. They, they were involved up there and they ended up building this house with Wheeler Kearns, which is a, a very sort of forward thinking Chicago architecture firm. They had previously built sort of a summer studio. They built a little building way back on a piece of land also designed by Wheeler Kearns. They later sold that. They also sold their house in or their I think by that time they had a condo in Chicago. They had lived in Oak Park and moved into this. This it's it's really interesting. It's on nearly 80 acres. They raise cows. You don't have to. Um, it has a barn that may date to the 19th century. They're not 100% sure, but it's, it's quite old. And from these windows we're looking at here, you're looking across the road at Taliesin, at specifically the Midway Garages, which was a, essentially a service building that Wright designed, but it's Frank Lloyd Wright, so it doesn't look 
cheap. You can see sort of Taliesin itself on the hills, and there's this really interesting Romeo and Juliet tower on one of the hills. All that is sort of out there for you to enjoy uh, from your green built house with geothermal heat and solar panels and green materials and walls of glass that bring in views of what's known as, for people who don't know, the driftless region of Wisconsin, Spring Green, and around in there, southwest Wisconsin, is called the driftless area because the glaciers didn't scrape them flat like it, they did much of Wisconsin and, and certainly where we live in Illinois. So you're looking at these rolling hills, you're looking at Frank Lloyd Wright, you're looking at your cows out on your acreage, Really, I mean, like, I need that two and a half million dollars by the end of today. Yeah, I was going to say, this is very Rodkin. There's a lot lot going on that I could see you living in. And it, it has so many um, elements of, of kind of that mid-century modern that we talk about so much. If you look past the kitchen counter to that wall behind, so again, we're in the town of Spring Green, which is a shade of green, right? And that's what that back-painted glass is. It's sort of a spring green. So when you look out at, look out the windows, you see green all around, and then it looks almost as if it invades the kitchen and comes behind the counters because you've got this, this green back-painted glass. This is the kind of thing that Wheeler Kearns does. Look at the wood um, on the ceilings and the counters. Look at that nice smooth floor. I mean, this is, it's a really, it's a very pretty space. So you're in a space like this. And when people come to visit, you take them to see Taliesin. It's like an architectural festival. There's an, there's an office picture coming up that was like now my dream office. So I'm sorry, when you buy this house, I need to rent the office space from you. You can, you can visit Amy because you can stay in that 19th century barn. Great. I'm happy to stay in the barn. (laughs) That's fine. I mean, look at this little office room. You've got like counter space all the way around it. And you have glass all the way. I mean, how do you, how are you not inspired in that room? Of all the umpity ump houses I've looked at over the past 30 years, this is the one I would sell a kidney to get. You know, you say things like that and you're going to end up doing, and that's the thing is you would sell a kidney to get this house. I don't want to, I got to, I got to be, stay off Twitter. Somebody has probably tweeted at me. I'll, I'll buy your kidney. Yeah. Oh, I need a kidney. I'll buy yours. Yeah, for sure. All right. It is time in the show to turn to some reader questions and listener viewer questions. Um, so let's, let's go to that. So let's start with uh, Monica who asks, are home sales going down? I've had my house on the market for 30 days and nothing. No, home sales are not going down. Um, I'm looking, I, I look at weekly data that is uh, posted by Midwest Real Estate Data. And in each of the past two weeks, the, the most recent week would be the one that ended yesterday, May 31st. In each of the past two weeks, there were 5,100 homes put under contract. Those will be closed sales in the next few weeks or months. That's up from uh, the range of 4,600 to 4,800 for most of the spring. And most of the spring, we were like in boom mode. So now we're in boom plus mode. 5,100 homes put under contract in each of the past two weeks. Um, not all of those will will close. Some contracts will fall apart. But the point of that is, no, um, Monica, homes have not stopped selling, which unfortunately makes me say, you might need to take a close look at your house. Um, generally, if homes aren't selling these days, there there's a reason. Uh, it might be location. You might just be somewhere that people don't care for. But more likely, um, your real estate agent may not have said this to you, but it might be price. Um, homes are selling when they're at when they're priced right, and priced right is not 
I paid a dollar for it. I put 50 cents into rehab. I want a dollar 51. Priced right is what will the market pay me for this house right now? It might be a dollar 35, unfortunately. Um, and then there are other things. I mean, it might not be price. It might be uh, condition. Generally, even in this market where prices are, are going nuts, people are paying for a home that is done. They're not paying for a house for the most part. They're not paying for a house that they have to upgrade. So if you have beat up countertops, beat up kitchen floor, scrapes in your hardwood floors from where the chairs have been dragged around for years, and you thought, eh, we'll leave it that way and the buyer will take it, that may be why your house hasn't had anybody looking at it. The other thing to think is if, if actually nobody has called at all, it could be your photography because everybody shops first online now. So if your pictures are murky or if your pictures show a lot of cherry cabinets, um, we used to talk a lot about curb appeal and now it's screen appeal. A house really has to go pop right there on those listing sites. So that would be another thing to look at is, uh, is it a question of the photography attached to your house? All good advice. All right. And then Michelle asks, how is the inventory of new construction homes in Chicago? Like all other inventory, it's really tight. So what we don't know is, does she mean Chicago City of or, or Chicago the Metro? So I looked up both. Uh, in the city, the inventory of new homes for sale is a little bit less than three months worth of uh, three months worth of inventory. Generally, as we've discussed many times, healthy inventory is four to six months. Um, if there's if there's two months or less, you think there's a little bit of a danger and prices really start to jack up because there's just not enough for the buyers out there. There's less than three months inventory of new construction homes, houses in the city of Chicago. I didn't look at condos because that's a whole different concept. Um, and part of, well, oh, and in the region, it's about the same. The last time we reported on new home sales, uh, an official from Tracy Cross, which is an agency, in, uh, an organization in Schaumburg that tracks this, was saying that one of the problems is for so many years, suburban home sales were so low that developers didn't start new projects. Then, boom, we kick into this recovery and everybody's interested in new homes. Well, it takes a while to start new ones. So uh, the number of new home developments has dropped dramatically uh, because people just weren't starting new ones. So he expected that it would start up again soon um, because people, builders will see, well, I can really sell these much better than I could a few years ago. But in both cases, city and region wide, the inventory of new construction is pretty darn tight. And the primary reason, as a lot of people know, uh, aside from people didn't start new developments in the suburbs, is that uh, lumber prices and other commodities that go into construction have skyrocketed because of the real estate boom, or in part because of the real estate boom. There are other factors as well, but everybody's buying houses. Everybody needs wood. Wood's in short supply. Prices have gone up. A lot of people either can't or don't start building. So those are uh, that's a, a primary factor in the short supply, both in the city and in the suburbs. There you have it. All right. Well, thanks so much, Dennis. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, Radio Flyer is taking e-bikes and scooters for a spin. After 104 years making wagons and other toys for kids, the Northwest Side Company now looks to sell its products to adults. We'll talk about that and more right after this. 
Here's a great way to stay in touch with Crane's Daily Gist. Subscribe to the Crane's Morning 10. It's our daily newsletter featuring the 10 biggest stories of the day. To subscribe, visit chicagobusiness.com slash morning 10. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. For the first time in nearly a year, travelers to Chicago from around the U.S. won't have to quarantine for 10 days when they arrive, nor will they need to bring a negative COVID test. That according to the city's Department of Public Health. And the entire country is yellow. City Health Commissioner Dr. Allison Arwady said, quote, for the first time since CDPH began issuing the travel order in July 2020, there are no states in the orange tier. And so there are no states that, that you have to get a, that you have to quarantine for or that you need to get tested for. Um, and that's because COVID is getting better, not just here in Chicago, but really around the country. Uh, and there are that's no awesome. states that are over that. 15 uh, daily cases per 100,000 mark. As cases fall nationally, Chicago is also now in lower risk territory, she said, adding everything is absolutely heading in the right direction. Also this week, Governor J.B. Pritzker promoted a bill that allows people who've been vaccinated to be rewarded with a drink, wine, beer, or an ounce and a half of liquor at bars between June 10th and July 10th. That bill passed both chambers of the General Assembly and will head to the governor for his signature. Pritzker also said to be on the lookout for further announcements very soon about Illinois joining other states in launching a vaccine lottery to encourage more residents to get vaccinated against COVID-19. Overcoming objections from Mayor Lori Lightfoot and some civic groups, on Tuesday night, the Illinois Senate approved a plan to elect all members of an expanded Chicago Board of Education by 2026, sending the measure to the House for a vote. The 36-15-2 vote came about an hour after the Senate Executive Committee voted 9-5 with two abstentions in favor of a bill by Senator Rob Martwick that would begin the election process in November of 2024 and complete the transition two years later. Senate President Don Harmon supported the legislation. The Martwick bill was endorsed by Rep. Delia Ramirez, chief sponsor of an all-elected bill that already has passed the House. But the House, of course, has adjourned, and likely for the summer, so it could be a while before the bill can go to the governor for a signature. Under the terms of it, though, for two years between the 2024 and 2026 general elections, the city would have 10 appointed and 10 elected board members. The mayor would name the chair with the approval of the city council. By 2026, the city would be divided into 20 board districts, with each electing one member. The 21st, which would be the board chair, would be elected citywide, with all members taking office by January 2027. Lawyers argued in court documents filed on Tuesday that several charges in the federal case against former ComEd executives and Springfield insiders should be dropped. Former ComEd CEO Ann Promajore, Springfield insider Michael McLean, former City Club of Chicago Chief Jay Doherty, and one-time ComEd Vice President John Hooker have been charged with devising a bribery scheme intended to gain favor with then-Speaker of the Illinois House, Mike Madigan, on behalf of the company. All four have pleaded not guilty. In Tuesday's filings, the four defendants asked U.S. District Judge Harry Leinenweber to dismiss several charges, including bribery conspiracy, and argued that the U.S. attorney improperly portrayed routine policy and job recommendations as violations of federal bribery statutes. The filing argues, quote, in bringing this indictment, the government attempts to criminalize conduct that has long been legal and that is utterly routine. 
hiring someone at the recommendation and request of a public official. It continues, quote, adopting the government's view would put huge numbers of American citizens at risk of prosecution for their ordinary participation in the political process. And though he hasn't been charged with a crime, Madigan has been implicated in the scheme in which the utility is accused, and that is giving his associates no-work jobs while the utility aimed to get his support for ComEd-friendly legislation in Springfield. After more than a century making products for kids, Chicago-based Radio Flyer is launching its first products for adults, electric bicycles and scooters. CEO Robert Payson credits a partnership with Tesla in building electric cars for kids in helping Radio Flyer build up expertise in electric motors and lithium-ion batteries, as well as an e-commerce channel. He said, quote, In the past 20 years, we've expanded our product line a lot beyond the little red wagon. He continued by saying, Micro-mobility has been exploding in growth. The pandemic accelerated this trend to make bike riding a more viable alternative to cars. One of the models for adults is a cargo bike that sells for just under $2,000. A smaller e-bike sells for just under $1,700, and scooters are priced just below $600. And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to our guest today, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. And be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get on-demand audio. And find hashtag Cranes Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.